the sermon passage this morning, we're going to take a break from Samuel through the Advent season. We're going to focus on some Advent texts uh, through this season as we prepare for uh, the coming of Christmas. Uh, so this sermon passage this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. If you would like to follow along, we read it this morning already. If you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to do so. But let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this Advent season. We give you thanks for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, not just in the past, not just in the first century, but also the coming on the last day that we look forward to with hope and expectation. I pray that you would give us faith to see that uh, the promises of your Son's coming are true and that we can count on them, that we can count on the justice of our Lord Jesus Christ coming on earth as it is in heaven. Give us understanding from your word and send us your spirit this morning through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So this morning marks the first Sunday in the Advent season. If you're not familiar with the church calendar, uh, you can see me afterward. I'll try to talk and explain it to you. Um, But it's a wonderful wonderful tradition of the church, uh, mainly following the life of Jesus Christ, starting with the Advent season. This is the first Sunday of the new year for the Christian calendar. And this Advent season is a season of hope and expectation of our Lord's coming, not just of his coming in the first century, as I mentioned in the prayer, but also his coming on the last day. It's a time of expectant hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his first and last coming. And with our Lord's coming comes judgment. This is a theme that you'll see all throughout the passages through Advent, the judgment of the Lord falling on his people and the world. But the hope beyond that judgment is always glory. It is always glory. And this hope that we look forward to does not only mean the deliverance of man from sin and death. It does, and we'll see in just a few minutes uh, what, that, what that actually means and what it looks like. But it means the glory of the whole world and all that is in it. The creation groans and longs for the salvation of the sons of men. The coming of Christ is the coming of of an incarnate, perfect, risen, and exalted Lord, and of all his people who follow in his train, and of the earth itself. The earth looks with longing for that day because it means their perfection, resurrection, and glory too. The song that we sang this morning, O Savior, rend the heavens wide, shows us this truth quite well. The first verse talks about the heavens rending, separating, opening up, The Lord coming down in might and glory and unveiling heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. And then, only a few verses later, he says, the the writer says this. O earth and flowering bud be seen, clothe hill and dale and garb of green. O earth, bring forth this blossom rare. O Savior, rise from meadow fair. Here dreadful doom upon us lies. Death looms too grim before our eyes. O come, lead us with mighty hand. From exile to our fatherland. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ means the coming of our first fruits from the dead, our head who has and will go before us, our hope that we too will spring forth blossomed from the same glorious meadow as He. But all of this beauty and all of this glory that we encounter in the gospel of Christ's coming would not shine as brightly without the recognition of our need for such a salvation. Why do we ask the Lord to come quickly? 
because we fade as a leaf, because we are unclean, we still get dirty with sin, and because we often forget to call upon the Lord and follow His ways, we need the Lord to come to us. He is the potter, we are the clay, we are the work of His hand. And looking back on the gospel of Jesus Christ, His first coming, we see that this is obvious. Our Lord visited while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He saved us not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy. We love Him, as John says, because He first loved us. Christ Jesus has visited us and judged us righteous in Him, and He has done for us already. And He will do again for those who call upon Him, who recognize their uncleanness, and who remember His ways and follow him. He shall come again to complete our salvation on the last day, putting an end to sin, Satan, and death forever. And that is our hope and expectation. That is the hope and expectation of Advent. It is the hope and expectation of the whole world. And this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64, has three movements for us to consider this morning. Isaiah begins by asking for the presence of the Lord to come down out of the heavens. He then explains why this is necessary. He says, because God is angry with us. That's the second movement. God is angry with us, with his people. And finally, the third movement, he points to our need for our salvation amid the presence of God and asks that the Lord look upon his people graciously and mercifully. Isaiah is calling for God to visit his people. We need to understand this passage from that context. His people, the nations that are mentioned, will, be, will bear witness to God's coming judgment on His people. When we interpret this passage as the state of man, individual man, prior to salvation or individual conversion, the passage actually begins to fall apart. That's not the way we're supposed to interpret this passage. This is about an unfaithful corporate people whose righteous acts are deemed to be filthy garments before the Lord, whose iniquities carry, carry them away like the wind, and who no longer call upon the name of Yahweh. And this makes it clear that Isaiah is speaking about the two advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord rends the heavens, when He causes the mountains to shake, the nations to tremble, and fire to come down before His people, He comes to judge and make right his people. And this happened in Exodus chapter 19. Moses writes, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. If you remember, this happens in the Gospels at our Lord's crucifixion. Darkness was over the land, the earth quaked, the dead were raised and vindicated, and the soldiers of the nations trembled. And said, truly, this was the Son of God. On the final day, we have the same imagery. Thunderings, lightnings, earthquakes, fire, and the nations scattering in fear. Isaiah is praying that the Lord would rend the heavens and judge his people because the people of God do not wait for him. They do not rejoice and do righteousness. And they do not remember his ways. Isaiah says that the beginning since the beginning, man has not seen or heard any God besides Yahweh. This means two things. 
This means two things. The first, Israel may be turning to false idols during Isaiah's time. They need to be reminded that all the gods that they have heard, the God that they have heard since the beginning is God himself, the true God of Israel. In the first century, we see the same sort of drifting from the true God of Israel. We see the idol of mammon and political power. Today, we may see other idols, lust, pride, man, and again, on and on it goes, right? So Israel may be turning to false idols. They need to be reminded that since the beginning, the God that they have heard is the God of Israel. The second is that this means that Israel is without excuse. Since they have heard from the beginning the God of Israel, the true God, and not any other God, they are without excuse. There is no other God but the God of Israel. And he only acts for those who, again, wait on him, rejoice, and do righteousness in his name, and to remember him and his ways. So Isaiah, being a righteous man, and who, who, uh, who wants the Lord to judge his people, to do away with those workers of iniquity that affect the whole body of Israel, and to make things right in the sight of the whole world, this Isaiah counts himself among those who have turned from God. He wants all of Israel to be saved. He wants the workers of iniquity to be judged so that their salvation would be a witness to the nations and cause them to fear the Lord as well. And this is precisely what happens and what happened with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the first century. His incarnation was the tearing, the rending of the heavens and the coming of God. His ministry was the dealing of justice and mercy, which ultimately climaxes in the crucifixion and final judgment of Israel in the sight of the nations. And his resurrection and ascension are the deliverance of his people from sin and death into the everlasting life of God. And in this way, we too can pray that the Lord would rend the heavens wide again, that our Lord who has come will come again to judge the living and the dead to cleanse his bride, to make her whiter than snow, and to bring the nations in subjection to him. And this is all necessary because the Lord, Isaiah says, is angry with us. Notice again, even though Isaiah is not the one committing the sins of Israel, he's got the ear of God. He's a prophet of God, right? We know this from Samuel in 1 Samuel. He is a prophet of God. He's got the ear of God. He is not among those who are sinning in this way. And even so, he includes himself among those whom God is angry with. Why? Why does he say us? Because Isaiah is a part of the corporate body of Christ. Though we often want to escape being lumped in with other Christians and other traditions because of their sins, we don't have that luxury. We are one body together. We share one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Though you may not want to be be lumped in with those sins, we are, by virtue of being connected to each other by the Spirit of God. And though you may not be directly responsible for those sins, and that's an important distinction, a little leaven leavens the whole, and the Lord will come to judge us all. The Israel of Jesus' day was an unclean thing, Isaiah says. 
They were a whitewashed tomb. And all of their supposed righteous deeds, which they thought would grant them favor with God and favor with men, were as filthy garments to the Lord. Any righteous deeds done out of hypocrisy or greed or self-promotion are counted filthy before God. And the language here, as many of you probably know, is the language of menstrual pads. God gets really dirty when he talks about filthy garments here in Isaiah 64. They are counted as worthless, as unclean. As we learned last week, obedience of heart and hand is better than sacrifice. Their hearts were far from the Lord, and the Lord hated their alleged charity. And they were so far down the sinful path that their iniquities, Isaiah says, carried them away like the wind. Isaiah is speaking about Judah's current situation. They had been carried away literally by Babylon, but they had been carried away by their own sin so that there was no spiritual health in them. And this, of course, was the state of Israel in Jesus' day. But it can also be the state of the church today. Many American mainline churches, for example, are so carried away by their lusts and passions that they are spiritually blind and cannot comprehend the ways of God. To them, what is evil is good, and what is good is evil. They have faded, Isaiah says, like a leaf. Finally, these people, Isaiah says, no longer call on the name of the Lord in their distress. When we ascend so greatly and so often as a people, we become blind to our own errors. And this happens to individuals. We know this from personal experience, I'm sure. When individuals are caught up in sin, but it also happens to the corporate body. The corporate body can be blind to her sins. We become insulated by varying degrees of sin. And the only way out is the Spirit's work of conviction and wisdom. And we can see this especially clearly in the interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees in his ministry. With him and Sadducees and the scribes of Israel. They have become so hardened by their sin that they cannot call upon the Lord even if they were staring him in the face. They were so hardened by their sin. In fact, even the scriptures were confusing to them. We see this particularly in John chapter 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus. They cannot take hold of God because their hands are full of sin. And this is the state of Judah in Isaiah's time. It is the state of Israel in Jesus' time. And there have been many eras of church history in which this has been true of the state of the church. As Reformed folk, we think back on the Reformation of the church, for example. The Reformation was a time such as this. An institution that's so wrapped up and insulated by sinful passions like greed and lust and pride that it took an act of God to save those from under its grip. And when this is the state of the church, Isaiah says that God hides his face from us. And he goes even further than hiding his face. He consumes us. He's not talking about pagans here. He's not talking about those who have not known who God is. He's not talking about people who are disconnected from God, who, who have not converted to God. He is talking about how God acts toward his people who are unrepentant and hardened in their rebellion to the Lord and his voice. 
He cannot look upon us because He is holy and we have made ourselves unclean. He must consume us because we have sinned against His holiness. And Isaiah bases this behavior in the fact that God is our Father. That we are clay and He is the potter. That we are the work of His hand. Where else is this language used? Paul uses this in this exact language in Romans chapter 9. To describe Israel's rejection of the Christ and God's justice in crushing them and removing them from the vine of Israel. Paul says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Paul goes on. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might, no- he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared before him for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? We see this play out in Isaiah's day when Israel is crushed by the Babylonians. And Judah is brought into captivity. Isaiah is looking forward to the deliverance of Judah by the Persian king Cyrus. We see this at the end of 2 Chronicles. And he's obviously looking forward to the deliverance of the true king, our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, judgment falls on the Jews, on Israel. And they are crushed by the Romans. And they are utterly destroyed later in AD 70. Their destruction was used to make known the riches of God's glory to those who received Christ, both Jew and Gentile alike. And today, we have that same truth echo in the stories of denominations falling away only to bring forth new groups of Christians and churches that honor the Lord more sincerely than before. This sanctification of the church brings the nations to tremble to fear, and to faith. The Reformation was a picture of this. But I can think we can, we could probably even think of smaller examples today. Many of the mainline churches have abandoned the gospel. They have taught that marriage can be distorted, that boys can be girls and girls boys. Even that the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is not true. This isn't about bashing other churches, by the way. This is this is just being honest about the sin that has crept in to the broader church in our day and age. We are, in many ways, unclean. Made unclean by postmodern philosophy and social appeal. And many of these churches are fading away, and they're fading away fast. They're drifting further and further into sin and into obscurity. And some no longer call upon the Lord at all, teaching that there are other ways to salvation besides the one way, truth, and life of Jesus Christ. But we must know by Isaiah's words here that God is not mocked. And they are doomed to destruction, and the destruction will make known the riches of God's glory on those whom love Him. Because Isaiah shows us that this is not an us versus them, I want you to hear this as well. Again, it's not an us versus them scenario. It is not a time to say, I'm so glad I'm not like those Pharisees and Sadducees, right? God's whole church is being sanctified. That is the point. It is a time to wait upon the Lord, 
to rejoice in the work that he, he is doing, to do good in his name, and to remember the Lord and his ways even more, to call upon him to save all of us, even those mainline churches who are drifting away. Isaiah begins to do this in verse 9. He says, Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We all are your people. People. He calls on the Lord to save his people because they need to be saved. Not just them down the street, right? Not just them at, at whatever church with, with, uh, with, with Reverend Jessica, right? Not just those churches, not just the PCA church, or PCUSA church down the street, but all of us. We all need to be saved. The state of the broader church should call all of us to pray like Isaiah. That we too would walk in the ways of life that our Lord has called us to walk in. And that we would call those brothers and sisters who are drifting to do the same. The Lord has done such a work for us. The Lord, the Word of God, took on human flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived sinlessly. He took upon Himself our sins and iniquity. He died for us. He was vindicated in His resurrection. And He ascended on high, promising to come again. Our salvation took place 2,000 years ago. And yet, Paul says, we are still being saved. Sin still lingers. Death is not yet crushed. And corruption is a part of life. Though salvation has already come, we ask that salvation continue to come. That God continues to act for those who wait for Him, who take joy in doing good, and who remember Him in His ways. And that is what we are called to do. And through that faith and expectation, through that hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved. Matthew Henry put it so well when he said, quote, Thou hast, therefore thou wilt, is good arguing at the throne of grace. End quote. Thou hast, therefore thou wilt, is good arguing at the throne of grace. God has done Therefore, He will do. That is how we are to approach the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we are to approach God. When we have sinned greatly, when we have sinned over and over again, when we have abandoned God's ways for our own and made an idol of our passions, we must always remember that God has forgiven us before. Therefore, He will again. And with boldness, we are to go before Him confessing that sin and turning away from it. And with that in mind, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. And this is why our baptisms must be remembered. This is why I always talk about remember your baptism, remember your baptism. Paul says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, he goes on to say, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Paul remembers his baptism. And with that remembrance, he goes before the Lord and he asks for forgiveness on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled on him. We have been saved. Therefore, he will continue to save us from our sinful ways. Our Lord has saved us, is saving us. And here's our hope. He will save us. 
This drives us toward the completion of our salvation. Paul says, to them, his saints, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this majesty among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you to hope of glory. Christ in us to hope of glory. Christ has gone before us into death, has paid our penalty for sin, and has been raised by the Spirit to sit at the Father's right hand in glory. Therefore, those with Christ in them will meet the same end. Thou hast, therefore thou wilt. So Christian, this hope, this hope of the gospel, of Christ coming again, is what motivates us to abandon our sinful ways and to cling to Christ by faith. It is also what animates us and gives us the hope to keep going, even in spite of all of the, uh, uh, the sinfulness of the church that is going on in our culture. We know that the Lord, as He sanctifies you, is sanctifying His church. That the sinfulness of the church will be slowly but surely squelched by the Spirit. This hope is the hope that our Lord will come down from heaven will vanquish all his enemies, sin, Satan, and death, and all those who serve them, and that God will be honored and glorified above all else, and we in him forever and ever. And that hope should cause us to be truthful about our sin. Not only individually, but corporately. And to pray with Isaiah that the Lord would judge his people so that the nations would tremble because of their uncleanness, And that God might make known the riches of of His mercy on those who call upon Him in truth. And finally, this hope should make us long for His coming and give us joy in following Him in all things. I encourage you all to pray like Isaiah for the coming of our Lord this Advent season. Pray that we, as the Church of Christ, will be cleansed more and more until we are presented spotless in Christ on that final day. Pray that the whole church, not just TRC, not just the churches down the street, not just Presbyterian churches, not just the CREC, but the whole body of our Lord Jesus Christ would faithfully wait upon the Lord, rejoice in doing good, and remember Him and His ways forever. We are one by faith, Christ, Spirit, and our Father in Heaven. And I'm confident that just as our Lord Jesus has saved his church in the past, he will save her today, and he will complete her salvation on the last day. Let us pray. O Lord, do not be furious with your people. Do not remember our iniquity forever. Indeed, please look upon us, for we are your people, the work of your hands, and you are our Father who acts for the one who waits for you. O that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down again. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.